and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. My name is Victor. I'm Annabeth. Woo! And welcome to this film club episode. This episode we'll be talking about the classic Jurassic Park. Joining us in this episode are Tom and Connor. Welcome to the show. I'm back. I return. <laughs> Good to be back. And Connor, this is your first time on the podcast. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, hi everyone. I'm Connor and I also work in museums education. I've worked at the Natural History Museum in London for a while and I've also worked in Australia as well at the museum there and in some conservation NGOs too. So I'm really happy to be on the podcast today. So we're talking about Jurassic Park and we're going to be again approaching this from the view of being science and environmental educators. So looking at this film through that lens and talking just as big fans of the Jurassic Park franchise. Yeah, because I think most people, I think, who work in museums, like I, I haven't really met someone who doesn't like Jurassic Park as a film or it hasn't inspired them in some way. Like an old little fossil hunter's Jurassic Parks. It's the big one. It's our generation though as well, isn't it? Like we all grew up with it, with the toys, with the films, with the comics, animations, all sorts of things. Exactly. And it's just like the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, the song itself, like just the the music, it's like instant goosebumps. And it keeps going. Yeah. It's still going. That's the thing. It's they've continued the franchise. So it's new generations are like we were. Yeah, definitely. What I'd be interested to know, as we've, we've all worked in museums and stuff, if you were to look back on it, like what are your early kind of memories of it? Whether it's like something, like a scene in it that you totally remember or like your first feelings of it. If you were to think of Jurassic Park and childhood, what kind of comes to your head, comes to your mind first? Connor, do you want to take this one first? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. I've been very um, careful so far not to gush about <laughs> Jurassic Park as it is probably my favourite thing. But uh, yeah, thinking back to earliest memories, it was just like this almost idolization of the of the scientists in the movie, like Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler, and just like how cool they looked, like working out in the desert and then like being called in and it, they were well paid <laughs> and they were popular for knowing lots about dinosaurs, which was obviously a big inspiration for a kid uh, obsessed with dinosaurs. So yeah, I think it was actually the the characters like that really drew me in quite a lot, surprising me when I was a kid. Yeah, they were like the fossil rock stars for us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when it, like, everyone else was watching other things, it was like Jurassic Park that you were like, wow, I can actually maybe do something with the things I love. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was for me, it was definitely seeing the big herbivores and things like that, just because I just love them. They're big, tall with long necks, so I kind of it speaks to me like my dinosaur spirit animals <laughs> when I definitely saw them it was just yeah it's just instant goosebumps it's crazy that I've seen the film like oh well into the double maybe who knows maybe even triple digits and there's still that first scene where they see them all and it's just it's I still I still like it just still blows me away so I we're trying not to gush but I think I'm failing miserably <laughs> uh Tom what about you oh well, for me, similar. It's this is this is my favourite film of all time, hands down. I, I can't think of another film that has has impacted me as much as this, and continues to. Um, my 
like most impactful thing for me is it's a bit of a combination of both Conrad and Annabeth, really. It's the signs and wonder. Uh, the wonder, like Annabeth, so when you see the, the herbivores and, and you hear about Ian Malcolm says, they did it. They actually did it. They, this, this, is, this is possible. Isn't this incredible? And look at this majestic animal before us that none of us dreamed we could ever see is right here. And then Alan Grant says, like, you know, they do run in herds and they, like, they could actually learn from this as well. That's amazing. <laughs> but um, the yeah. science side of things, it's what got me into genetic interest. It's what got me. I remember being in year six um, and drawing, like, hybrid things that DNA has got, because you, know, you don't really know exactly what the ins and outs are of, of genetic stuff at that age. But, like, if you could have some sort of genetic alteration, what would you have? And, like, pick from these three, and I would make lists with my classmates. And, yeah, they didn't always share the same enthusiasm, but uh, I rode it all the way to my adulthood. <laughs> and then you find other people who all shared the exact same enthusiasm. I know. And here we are. Probably what I'm going to do now. This is just lunchtime oh, conversation. What about you, Victor? <laughs> uh, what, about, what about you, Victor? Is there something yeah. that really speaks um, to you still? Every time I watch that, that first introduction where their little jeep goes over the hill and Hammond is like, welcome to Jurassic Park. And you get the pan over that scene with all the dinosaurs moving around through the fields and like the big um, brachiosaurs coming up out of the water. That moment is so iconic and so good and just distills everything that makes dinosaurs like so amazing and wonderful that they're, you know, it's this whole group of animals that has now gone from the earth and everything we think we know about them is just entirely based on inference. But then seeing them, suddenly they're alive, real creatures in front of you. Like that whole concept, it just, yeah, really hits me every single time I see yeah. that. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, they just totally encapsulated like like you guys said, wonder and science in a film, and it's just it kind of sings to it, like how it still is rel not relevant, but still watched, and people still love it, and people still fall in love with it. And obviously, they've made the newer films and stuff, so there's kids, like adults, re falling in love with it, and new people falling in love with it. It just it's this gift that keeps on keeps on giving. But then, yeah, there's the interesting side, the actual what kind of educational take homes and lessons can actually be taken from it, which is actually I think what we're chatting about today. What do you think the film did best? I think for me, it's just kind of the taking something like a, like a faction of science, so like paleontology and making it really, 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 really interesting, exciting, taking it from looking at kind of bones and fossils, which is still great, but actually kind of, I don't know, putting a bit more of imagination into it and getting, I think it really got a lot more people excited about paleontology like I think I think they looked into it or something and after the film people applying for paleontology degrees absolutely skyrocketed and stuff mm -hmm. so I think that yeah. there's that side of it like getting people into it and realizing that it is actually it is exciting and yeah okay it does come with like the really really hard work like the years toiling away like brushing fossils and digging and stuff but there's people that love that and I think it actually allowed them to connect with that love which was really really important. I think, um, yeah, building on that, a fantastic thing that they did is when you watch the behind the scenes, uh, like documentaries and such, is the amount of work they put into making the dinosaurs feel like real animals as well. 
to make them feel so tangible and real to really inspire people by like um studying the movement of modern day relatives of dinosaurs like like ostriches and emus and then stuff like elephants and rhinos and really like pinpointing and making them feel like real animals and of course like the amazing effects like you watch the film and you the first one especially and you, you, you they they look like real creatures and i think that also played a huge part in that is that i mean audiences at the time this was the first time dinosaurs looked that real and that probably has such a massive impact on all those people that were watching it back then that that would be my point as well as connor said they're presented as animals they're animals they're, i've it's so funny how many people i still meet in my job and out, outside of it and and when I say, when I reference animals, when I'm talking about dinosaurs and they say, well, whoa, 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 that's not, that's not the same, you can't, that's not the same, right? That they're, they're, di they're dinosaurs, they're not animals. No, no, they, they are. They're, they're, and this was a film that for the first time in, 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 in part, they were presented as animals. Whereas before it, you've got any film and, and pictures, they're all these vicious, deadly monsters. They're monsters. I mean, yes, I know the series has kind of gone that direction a little bit, but let's steer away from that right now. Uh, but in the original, they were presented as animals. And that was important because it, it, it meant this is, this is part of zoology. This is animal science. This is, this is learning about the natural world. Yeah. What I think the film did the best is weaving in that uh, behavioral ecology, weaving in the paleontology into this overall story. Mm -hmm. Like if you, if you listen to it, you can catch Dr. Grant every so often. He, he'll ask these questions that are key questions in paleontology, and he's asking them of the other scientists of Hammond. Like at one point, he asks about whether they're cold-blooded and maintaining their body temperature. And it's just this little aside, but it's in there, this little moment. All of these little questions that are in there, and it just shows you the, the amount of care that they put into the film. Yeah, really nice little touches like that. I totally agree. And I think definitely one of the things I love when I watch it is that kind of the awe that they have when they first see them. I just, I just know if I was there, I'd be exactly the same, same reaction. Absolutely, and that application of like making them feel like real animals and asking those paleontological questions. And as Annabeth said, that it's really held up. And I think it gets a bit of a bad rap sometimes in lots of people saying that the, the dinosaurs are wholly inaccurate to what we know. But that's by modern day standards, like paleontology is a very fast moving science. And at the time, the, these were really, really close to what lots of um, current like contemporary paleontologists thought about dinosaurs, with a few exceptions for artistic license, like the spitting Dilophosaurus with the frill. But by and large, like every dinosaur in there was based on the most cutting edge of paleontology at the time, which was amazing. I'd say something that hasn't really aged because it's still as relevant today we say that we've got the scientific side of things from grant and sattler but ian malcolm's moral dilemmas throughout the film which is is kind of the author really speaking it's Crichton speaking through malcolm a lot i feel um they're still relevant and you know this is a podcast we talk about the environment they're still relevant today the idea of of, of bringing back an ecosystem that is unsustainable by today's standards, but trying to sustain it through management, through human intervention. Yeah, it's a good discussion to translate into today. I think there's one moment in the film, they're all sitting around eating um, dinner, I think, and 
uh, Hammond is talking about, you know, the systems of control that they have in place. And then I think it's the paleobotanist. She makes the comment like, well, you, you don't know anything about these ecosystems, these long ecosystems. How can you be so sure that you can control it? Like they've brought back extinct plants, all these extinct animals, and they're trying to piece together an ecosystem. And so it relates really well to discussions right now going on about controlling climate change through geoengineering. Like that, it's even bigger scale really than that. And so like, how much do we really want to put our effort into geoengineering? How well do we think we really know what the consequences of that will be? I think that's a a fantastic point, how the the dinosaurs in the film are almost representative of the human kind of desire to and want to control nature almost. And yeah, it's precisely how Ellie puts it, where it's like, well, you pick those plants because they look good without any thought on their defensive mechanisms and how that could poison the tourists. And yeah, Malcolm, he, as he says, life cannot be contained. It's this resilience of nature and like the characters in the film, like Hammond and like Dr. Wu saying, oh, they're all females. We control their chromosomes. It's really not that difficult breaking down such complex fundamentals of nature into that, we can control that, don't worry. And it is a bit of a cautionary tale on how um, the human desire to control nature doesn't exactly go as planned. And I think that's a really good message um, from the movie. Take home message for sure, actually, true. Yeah, yeah, because what what goes wrong there is they, they overlook something, right? They overlook this detail that the frog DNA that they've used, like some species of frogs, they can actually switch sexes in the wild. We still don't fully understand the mechanism for that. And it's oversimplification of how nature works, you know, thinking we understand something when we really don't. It plays into the chaos theory side of, of the story. When you've got uh, any complicated system, the more small issues there, there are, the more little sort of kinks in the armour that eventually have it topple down. You could apply that to to modern day human intervention in nature. Um, but, you know, a lot of things have been very successful with multiple little factors that could go wrong. You look at things like huge dams that have been built, the, the physical processes involved in that and trying to manage that. It's amazing that it ever works, you know, but it does sometimes. And I guess that's what Hammond was hoping for. So on the topic of gene editing, we mentioned that uh, the scientists in this film, they managed to bring back dinosaurs by taking the DNA that they could recover from fossilized specimens and then blending it with frog DNA. That's something that we're not quite on, but there's been similar projects involving attempting to bring back mammoths. And I think, Connor, you've done a bit of homework on that for us. What did you manage to find out about that? project well what's really interesting is that the base of this project is is in the fact that an animal has already been brought back from extinction once uh, in the past that was in 2003 scientists in italy managed to bring back a species of ibex that had been extinct for a few decades because they had quite fresh remains still relatively speaking Whoa. of this ibex <laughs> Unfortunately, the ibex lasted for about two minutes <laughs> before it died because it had severe problems with its respiratory system, probably due to the kinks in that process, um, which means it's got the unfortunate title of the only organism to go extinct twice. Um, <gasps> yeah. What an award. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um but yeah as for the mammoths so there's a few different kind of techniques that have been explored um 
uh, there's there's the the first one is this idea of cloning like the dinosaurs in um in Jurassic Park where you would kind of um replace the nucleus in an empty egg cell of a of a surrogate host with um one from a long extinct mm. creature um now this would require finding an intact nucleus from a mammoth now there are frozen mammoth specimens that were trapped in permafrost in Siberia and such places but because of them being frozen the ice crystals have actually damaged the cells quite considerably so that the genetic information inside is is too damaged for that to develop at all um also there you have to take into account that dna does degrade over time and when the mammoths were at the height of their population that was over 10,000 years ago and typically we're not finding mammoths from that time at all let alone intact dna from that sort of time so that's a massive stumbling block um just for a that tad <laughs> just a <Yes>. little one <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of being pioneered by scientists at the Kyoto University in Japan. Um, so that is looking like a bit of a dead end. Now, there is a second method that's being looked at, and that is the idea of gene editing. Um, so a bunch of scientists at the Swedish Museum of Natural History, they managed to successfully um, complete and map out the genome so that's the dna sequence for the woolly mammoth that's crazy unbelievable the ideas that they're finding like now but an animal that went extinct and they've mapped the whole genome yeah what? so they managed to do that by looking at the frozen mammoth carcasses that are found in siberia basically that's amazing which that's, is that, that, that's step one in cloning get the genome <laughs> <Tick>. <laughs> Well, they, 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 from this research, they managed to find out that the, the mammoth genome matches modern day relatives of the mammoth, like African and Asian elephants, are a 99% match between Wild. the two genomes. Yeah, well, it's, it sounds like a lot, but when you think of how many different genes are, are in a genome, it's oh. actually a lot. That's well, Mr. DNA genome. says so. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So now we have the genome and we can see what is similar to modern day uh, elephants. Um, what scientists are doing is using the CRISPR technique to kind of edit the genes of modern day elephants and activating, deactivating certain things that correspond to things we'd associate with mammoths. So external ear size, fat reserves and hair, mm. kind of like reverse engineering a mammoth from a modern day elephant. So not a proper, not like a real mammoth as they were back then, but kind of modern approximation, which is kind of yeah. strange. There's a bit of debate over whether the result of that, is that a mammoth or is that an elephant that looks like a mammoth? Mm. Yeah. And actually the, the chief scientist at the Swedish museum, he doesn't want this, this genome to be used for that because he is thinking of the ethical repercussions of trying to create this animal. You'd have to find a surrogate mother to carry this baby. I mean, there are ideas of creating some artificial wounds in labs, but generally speaking, the most effective way would be trying to find, trying to insert this developing embryo into a elephant, which raises a whole bunch of issues. Also, mammoths were thought to be as gregarious as modern day elephants, so just having one is that fair on that one mammoth? Where are you going to put it? 
yes, Siberia still exists, but it's changed <laughs> a lot. There's a lot to this. It's not as simple as clicking your fingers and boom, elephants, uh, mammoths are back. Obviously, elephants are here. Mm-hmm. You know, when it, when it benefits humans, we do it a lot. But in this situation, it's more like for interests. What is the reason for doing it other than it would be pretty cool? You never stop to think whether you should. Uh, there are arguments that, um, like one day elephants, that mammoths would have acted almost as gardeners of their ecosystems, that they're... They would knock down trees and turn up habitats, create microhabitats within their ecosystem, and that's all been lost. So here's an example of a similar technology, but it has, there's a clear purpose. There are several projects underway now to release genetically modified mosquitoes into various areas of the world in order to control mosquito-borne diseases like malaria and uh, the Zika virus. So reducing mosquito populations would have a really clear health benefit for a lot of different people around the world. And one of the technologies that we have at our disposal that we're trying out is engineering mosquitoes that when they are released into the wild and breed with the wild mosquitoes, basically they result in sterile offspring. And there's a few different ways of that. Either um, all the offspring are sterile, and that means that, you know, if that as you keep releasing it, they mate with the wild ones, they produce sterile offspring, so that's gonna bring the population down. Uh, another method is a, what you call a, a gene drive. So these mosquitoes are engineered so that the, I think it's the females are, um, are all sterile, but the males can still mate with the wild females with the idea that over time, that's gonna keep the population down. And they've done some trials in the wild, in the field, in Brazil with these, one of these two technologies, and it brought down the wild um, Aedes aegypti, which is the main mosquito vector of diseases, um, brought down populations by as much as 85, 90%. So it's effective in that way. Wow. Holy moly. The argument is that because the offspring are going to all be sterile, they're very unlikely to be able to spread these genes beyond that because as soon as they mate the offspring eventually are sterile so the their risk of those genes escaping into wild populations is very low however um, i think last year there were a few reports and studies that actually they were able to find genes from these released engineered mosquitoes in the wild population Um, but they're not quite sure what that means Um, it's they're able to mate and breed, so it's not affecting them as far as they can tell in that way. Um, and there's not sure whether it affects uh, these, these genes are affecting um, their ability to transmit diseases. So there's another question for you. Hmm. I would say with this one, this, this requires constant monitoring and, and constant intervention as well. Because you're editing the genes of mosquitoes so that they're infertile, they're sterile, they they can't produce young. But you have to keep doing that. Because if you don't, then the non-sterile ones are just going to be the ones that are pervasive everywhere. That's all there is. I mean, it's kind of like the opposite problem, but equally as problematic as the mammoth. The mammoth, you're introducing something that has no ecosystem to a place that you designated an ecosystem for it. Here, you're taking something away from an ecosystem that has a place in it. 
you know, yeah. there, there are animals that feed on mosquitoes. There, there's, I mean, I, I, of course, I know the reason. The reason is the health benefit, of course. But if you do this entirely, I mean, would you want to eradicate mosquitoes? I think we would all say no, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I, from I the was thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> they're needed. They, you know, they're, 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 yeah. They're, yeah, they're, pol- they're pollinators, food. they do other things. Exactly, food. Just, there's, yeah. there's lots of, of environmental benefits to having that species. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, you would have to just keep managing it. You'd have to keep releasing periodically mm-hmm. these infertile, produ- non-child-producing mosquitoes to keep it going. Mm-hmm. That, that would be one of my, my concerns for this. But um, surely eventually it would just... I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I've mm-hmm. heard it wrong, but surely eventually... But if you keep releasing these kind of infertile mosquitoes, eventually, then there would be no more. Like, would they eventually just die out? No. Well, only if you managed it to the point of extinction. Yeah. Yeah. Which is Mm. to some extent the kind of the goal, um, because they want to basically remove that disease vector, right? They, they, Mm. if you get rid of the mosquitoes, suddenly malaria, for instance, doesn't have a vector to, to transmit it to other humans. So that's kind of the goal, is that it, it removes a disease. Kind of like, it would be like eliminating smallpox. Then you need to replace that animal in the ecosystem because it, it, something needs to occupy its niche. If you think, I always think of ecosystems like a big Jenga tower. If you pull out one of those bricks, it's going to wobble a lot and it might crash, even if you think it's a very, very small brick that's not doing very much. I just think it's super, like you can't just remove something from an ecosystem. You just can't. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you've definitely hit the nail on the head there for how I feel about this whole thing is that the 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 benefits to to humans would be like ridiculously high in terms of the you know the eradication of these uh, mosquito-borne uh, diseases however what would the long-term effects of removing the mosquitoes from these ecosystems be on not just the animals in those areas, but then those animals that prop up, once again, the people that are affected by this disease as well. So it's tricky because it's like, how can we tell what impact this is going to have on health? Yeah. And this is, I think, a discussion that (laughs) it's alluded to throughout the film. I think it's such a big, complex picture. That's the essence of chaos theory is is the studying these complex systems and... I guess then the the good link in with the film would be thinking about and discussing, okay, what are the questions that you would want to ask? What safeguards do you need to have in place? But a very interesting discussion that I think Jurassic Park lends itself to, that it does really well, because it's just throughout the film, it just throws up all these different little problems. Mm-hmm. I think it swings really well yeah. in that you're hit with the bit of like wonder and amazing and then straight away after there's kind of the the questions on okay but how did this happen like this kind of you get both sides of it throughout the film like the amazingness and then the reality and then like the you know oh the t-rex is incredible and then it gets out you know it's like it swings so you kind of you're never Mm. you're like when you watch the film like and the end of it you're kind of like wow a dinosaur park would be that would be so cool but then you also are like well but ethic like you're you you are kind of torn after you watch it as well yeah so when you're younger you're like totally on like Alan Grant's side and you totally get it. But then when I watch it now, I'm kind of like, oh, you know, Hammond's got a good idea. Like, I kind of like it. I don't know. <laughs> like you kind of, you kind of swap around. Like I definitely chop and change my feelings a lot the more 
I watch it. But I think it's the whole idea of the film. Like you just, every time you watch it, it gives you a new idea or a new point. And you... I think that's a really strong point of that first movie. I, I'm a fan of a lot of the Jurassic things that have come since. But I think that really does set the first movie apart is that flip-flop you're talking about, Annabeth, how for every spectacle moment you get quite a, then you put your thinking cap on. <laughs> I think that is a part of that lacking from some of the newer entries. Not that it's completely absent, but that first movie, it spells things out. It shows you every side of the debate really, really well. And I think that is one of the strengths when we're talking about environmental messaging is having both sides of that kind of argument. Uh, I, I would want to raise a point. Uh, there's a little bit of a, a difference because re reading Jurassic Park, the book, there is one theme that doesn't make it as much in the first film. They do in the, in the later films. Um, and that is, what if these animals got off the ecosystem we've created for them? And the very first time you see a dinosaur, read a dinosaur in the book, is a small dinosaur that ha has escaped and it's got off the island and the problems that that causes. Of course, that leads you to finding out about the island with the characters in it. But that is a real potential problem that they raise there. You know, this, uh, this animal could unbalance an ecosystem. You know, it could occupy an, a niche of several other animals and wipe them out. Um, yeah, it's, it's like biological control, but the wrong way. Yeah, because like dinosaurs, you think we're at the top of the food chain for not even like a short amount, like millions and millions and millions of years, dinosaurs ruled the earth. It would be like a wrecking ball in a house of cards. Mm. Yeah, either that or if you did want to keep them around, as I think we mentioned earlier, if the ecosystem just cannot support them, but you want them around, then you kind of have to keep supporting them, like have them eternally on life support. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think the invasive species risk would be quite real because that's something that we know can happen. It's happened any number of times in our modern world. You know, we've got all kinds of invasive species, insect species. I think goats became invasive on a few islands because people brought them there as like kind of food animals. Cane toads, Australia, a famous example of invasive yeah. species gone wrong. Yep. And that was, they were brought in as a control for another invasive yeah. species. Yeah. yeah. It was like a beetle or something. Yeah. Wasn't it? Get the fish hook out with another fish hook. Yeah. 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 Same with foxes in Australia brought in to hunt the rabbits that were released. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Linking in with this, uh, in Jurassic Park, they, they had the, the lysine contingency, didn't mm -hmm. they? So mm -hmm. that if they ever did get off the island, they they would they would die because they're out of their like you said victor the life support system like it's keeping them alive that mm -hmm. we control keeping them alive it turns out that almost no animals can synthesize lysine all all animals get it through their diet once again once again they 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 overlooked the small detail <laughs> but that's the point of science fiction <laughs> and it led that's, that's, that's science fiction you take it to as close as you can to be believable but you cut some corners here and there to make the story work and I think Jurassic Park, the amount of good that comes out of that film, I think you can overlook the, the, the minute, okay, not always not minute, but the scientific inaccuracies that led to its, its development as a yeah. Well, I'm looking at it in-universe from the perspective of Dr. Wu, like just how he forgot that uh, the, the, the frog DNA he was using was actually bad mm. for the job. He also overlooked the fact that the lysine deficiency wasn't very <laughs> useful either. So as great as he was for bringing mm. them back, he, he didn't have an eye for details. <laughs>
So is there anything that you thought the film didn't tackle as well as you would have liked? I think um, for as much as Dr. Malcolm is the voice of reason in many of these films, there's a certain attitude he has in that first one, which is almost a bit kind of Luddite in a way, and constantly berates the idea of science and discovery as a bad thing and says, God help us, we're in the hands of engineers. And actually, so a voice of reason in the movie seems to be against pretty much any type of scientific development, which I thought was quite interesting upon rewatching it. So I thought that, yeah, for, for a character that we're meant to go, oh, he's got it all figured out. He does have some viewpoints which would be quite counterproductive to a lot of the problems that we face to get today with certain environmental issues, like we were talking about with, um, with the mosquitoes and such. And sometimes there are issues we face that do require technological solutions. And I thought that was quite interesting. I think there's um, an interesting thread of arguments in um, discussions around genetic modification today. An argument that a lot of geneticists will make is that what humans have always been doing genetic modification, selective breeding is genetic modification. Like we are choosing certain characteristics and these characteristics are there because these individual plants have different genes or different gene expression that we're selecting for. We're just now doing it in a much fancier way and we can actually be more efficient in it. So I think it's a good discussion to have as the, the flip side, you know, when discussing the, about the morality and the ethics um, and the safety measures you would want to have in place when doing any genetic modification program, like thinking about what are the circumstances in which it would be okay. It's a funny one. It's definitely like, it, I think when it comes to these sort of questions, I think it's what benefits us the most. It's, I think we definitely put ourselves first when it does come to sort of genetic engineering or what makes our lives easier or better. Yeah, I think you definitely hit the nail on the head there when you're talking about things are only seen to have value in nature if they pertain specifically to us. And that's, that's, that is personified in the film by the Gennaro, the lawyer character. The moment he sees a dinosaur, like, not, oh my God, this is insane. This is the best thing I've ever seen is we're going to make a fortune with this place. The reason Jurassic Park exists is not for the, it's not for the dinosaurs. It's not for the environment. It's for people to come look at them and make money off of them. Yeah, like Hammond even says, oh, I want this park for everyone, not just the super rich. And then he says, oh, we could have a coupon. And then Hammond's like, <laughs> yeah, we can. So yeah, even Hammond. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think that, that's reflected in the movie uh, quite well. Uh, Absolutely. I, I have a, a point to make about what they could have done differently. Uh, I think the role of education in the film, sort of how education is presented. Now, I would say that I would like it to be differently presented, but actually I think it, in the way it is presented, it highlights a big issue. Uh, if you think about the Montana scene with all of the students around Grant and Sattler and how Grant says, um, you know, it's just like a bird. And they all, <laughs> oh no, oh Grant, <laughs> you and your ideas. <laughs> the field of paleontology takes a long time for anything to get accepted. Um, and, and largely it's because the evidence is always something that could be contested between people. But education takes time in this field. 
Uh, and a lot of people expect suddenly, oh, they didn't know. Now we know. Now we found out. They neglect this process that's gone on in the background to getting towards an acceptance for this idea. It isn't always one single sudden discovery that makes us accept it. It's lots of gradual things. I think this is a larger uh, consideration for science education in general is a lot of people they expect these newspaper headline outstanding sudden things to make them change the way they see the world it's a gradual process and uh, i guess jurassic mm. park doesn't doesn't really highlight that because everything is very sudden but then it, it's a film it's a movie you know you need you need for the narrative process things to be sudden and it does build it up nicely yeah. the way that they they disagree with grant's idea yeah. uh, and eventually you do get this evidence very slowly uh, through yeah. I like that Grant makes predictions and then later in the film is completely yeah. proven right on every single yeah. one of his predictions <laughs> like the raptors hunting and the T-Rex not sensing movement which is I mean, that's, not, not, that's not to say that not really sometimes you do get a, a sudden realisation I'm a, I'm a big fan of they do run in yeah. herds I love that, that. Yeah. Like, there is an answer that we never would have yeah. got enough evidence for maybe but maybe I mean yes we do have a lot because of fossil finds, but to actually see these animals, to, to have something that was always a, a, a point of contention between people, we've got the evidence now. Yeah. We've got it. We, we know. Yeah. This is incredible. We, we yeah. found it. I think I, I, I really like those moments, and I agree that I kind of wish that the film had made a bit more of those moments, because at the... <laughs> The way it is now, they're just little asides. And granted, it's a movie, it's a story. It's not like a documentary about dinosaurs. But it, I think it would have been nice to have some discussion of we could only guess before, but now we we can observe them and now we know. Like making slightly more of that and, and contrasting the way paleontology is at the moment where it's just you need to interpret fossils. And so everything is just... It's interpretation based on evidence, but it's still interpretation versus behavioral ecology or ecology where you can go out and observe live animals. Mm. You don't need to infer what these animals do to live. You can go out and observe them. Yeah. In terms of the dinosaurs' behavior, now this is maybe one thing I think the film could have gone further in addressing. And I'm going to preface this by saying the Velociraptors <laughs> are my favorite part of the movie. But their behavior is presented as almost serial killer-like, like stalking people through doorways and being very cunning. And I think um, that you see the conditions they're kept and they're kept in a tiny little pen and are, are fed with a crane like once a day or something. And it, it, it's, it's shown by Grant's research that these are really fast predators that need their natural range and ability to hunt. And I think they could have gone further in addressing that these raptors in the park have been molded by their environment of being kept in such quite terrible captivity um, compared to the other dinosaurs because of um, their kind of natural abilities and such. And this is one point that I think when the sequels actually beats Jurassic Park 1 over is that they specifically have a discussion about this in Jurassic World about the Indominus Rex. So like, well, of course it's going crazy because it was raised in a tiny pen and only fed from a crane. And I thought that's kind of a point where in hindsight, Jurassic Park could have had a great narrative around that, especially with the character of Muldoon, the game hunter, who says, oh, I've seen it all. You know, he's worked in it with lions and tigers, but 
this is one case in which those methods don't work with Raptors and he pays the ultimate price. And I think you can get that from the film, but it, I think that would have been cool to have that, like Victor said, make more of a point of these like moments. I think they were quite behind in their presentation of captive animals. A lot of modern day zoos have massive considerations for animal welfare. My partner used to work in a zoo in Florida and she said it's all about animal enrichment. It's about not just throwing some food to a tiger, it's about hiding it in a container where the tiger has to figure out a kind of puzzle to try and retrieve it from there. It's about giving these experiences to animals to try and replicate some sort of natural environment. Uh, and it's something that they, they didn't really do much of in Jurassic Park. I guess they were going for more of a safari park vibe where they've got the open plains. But yeah, with raptors, they, they did nothing. But I guess they were scared of them, weren't they? I, I think the animal enrichment point is such like a good one because you could, you know, assume that millions of years ago when they were roaming and alive for real, like they would have come into, like the herbivores and carnivores would have come into contact with each other like numerous times. And there would have been that sort of like actual feeling of, living that sort of own enrichment in that way and it's just when you mentioned like your partner and stuff that when they worked at the zoo i used to work for a highland wildlife park and they had snow leopards and then they had like this type of goat basically but these this goats and the snow leopards in the wild they would inhabit the same area so what they used to do is when the grass needed like the like foliage needed to cut in the snow leopard's enclosure well they take the snow leopard away and put the goats in and the goats would roam and tread everything down and then they take the goats out and put the snow leopard back in. And this was like a natural form of enrichment because the snow leopard could they would then smell the goats with like roaming around, like following like tracks and trails and everything like that. And it was like a natural enrichment for them. Like they would be kind of doing their own like kind of hunting behavior, obviously not by getting a goat at the end, but they would be getting, you know, similar meat and that sort of thing. But it was just that sort of like mental stimulation that is so important, especially for carnivores and things like that. If you were you know, designing a dinosaur park, it's something you would need to take into consideration. I guess that was kind of left out of the film. But then, like you said, in Jurassic World was taken into consideration a lot more. If you look at how a lot of reptiles are contained, there are often very poor considerations for them. Uh, it seems to be with that particular group of animals, amphibians by some degree as well, uh, a lot of the time they're, they're not really catered for. And they are kept in small and close spaces. Maybe that's kind of what they were going for, you know, because they don't know about these animals. These are brand new things. They're trialing whatever they can work out and, and, and they don't know it. So stick them in a small pen. I mean, it's what we do with snakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, yeah. I wonder if that's a product of the time because uh, Jurassic Park came out in 92. Is that right? 93. And so at that point, I think zoos had definitely come a long way compared to maybe 1950s, 1960s, when yes. enrichment for these wild animals was really not considered. It was more, you know, how can we guarantee that visitors are going to be able to see these animals? Whereas nowadays you go to zoos, it's, at least in the UK, it's required that animals be able to access an area that's off view at all times. So they, the animals always have an option to go somewhere where it's not being looked at by people well, they, re they reference that a little bit in the second film, don't they? They talk a bit more about captive um, enclosures for animals because of the plan of InGen to, to take them to San Diego. Yeah, and because uh, the behaviour of a lot of zoo animals is, uh, like, what you see them do is, is often, because they're effectively traumatised by being 
in these you know tiny enclosed spaces for such a long time. So a lot of zoos are, are really conscious of that now. Whereas in the early 90s, I'm not sure how far a lot of zoos would have come along that route yet. And then, you know, th these are filmmakers. So however far zoos came, it, probably the filmmakers were a, a step or two behind that as well. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a product of its time, but I don't say that in a bad way. I think there's so much to still celebrate. Oh, definitely. So much that we can still get. And I think for me, the most important thing that, that anyone can get is a sense of interest and a sense of motivation to learn, to learn more about these animals, to learn more about this science, to learn more about this technology. It's, it's so compelling. It's, it's presented in such a wonderful way. Um, and I think it's been the springboard for a lot of people in their interests, uh, various interests, you know, even filmmakers. I mean, it's Spielberg. Spielberg does well yeah. with a lot of things. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it holds up really yeah. well. You know, the visual effects hold up really well. I, I think, mm. I, as you said, Connor, in large part because of how much care went into the animatronics, like it's, it's amazing how well the visual effects hold up. Whereas you look at something like Toy Story, where it's CGI, it's stylized, which is fortunate. But yeah. when you look at the first Toy Story, you can tell that it's, it's quite an old film. Whereas when you look at Jurassic Park, it looks pretty modern still. Um, to, Timeless. To yeah. Mm. Yeah, it does. I think they did a great job of, um, of kind of knowing when to use certain effects. Like you'll notice most of the large scale animatronics are shown at night when it's raining when they'll be kind of visually obscured and then only close-ups are used for animatronics and then distant body shots for the CGI and then occasional, like there's a one of my favorite moments is <laughs> when the T-Rex breaks out, it, it's a, a, a view from inside the, the car and you see the animatronic T-Rex head lower in front of the windscreen and it raises out and then you see it walk off and then when it walks off that CGI, it's just seamless, and I think that plays a big part. And they knew how you, to use those effects. Yeah, so the, car, the car's sort of framed, thing. doesn't he, to, to, to yeah. split between it. Yes. So yeah. from the CGI uh, yeah. to the puppet, and oh, it's so well done. <laughs> yeah, genius. I'm glad they've kept the franchise going. I, I have issues with some of the later films, yes, but. I'm glad that this is a franchise that can bring future generations an interest in this aspect of the natural world. Definitely. Like, yeah, I could not agree absolutely. with you more there. Like, I'd like there are many more kids that I've seen with, like, dinosaur toys and dinosaur books. Mm -hmm. It makes me, brings me so much joy. I definitely know that growing up that, like, dinosaur toys were for boys. Like, I always got told that and things mm -hmm. like that at school. And it's just so nice now to see, like, the barriers being broken there and seeing like girls like carrying little t-rexes around and like little baryonyxes which is my favorite carnivore i want to jump off of your comment about it not being for girls because it irritates me so much and i think one of my favorite things that jurassic park did was have such a strong female main character in dr ellie sattler i know that the majority of the cast are male and the times were still pretty behind compared to today. You know, I mean, Connor, you know about the, the marketing, <clears throat> the marketing for the toys 
it's all boys, it's all aggression, it's all um, blood-seeking missiles and all of this. Yeah, the, the toys, they only made an Ellie Dassler. They, they made a Tim Murphy, but they didn't make a Lex Murphy because they <sighs> thought, who wants yeah. to play with the girl toy? <laughs> and they gave them all massive guns That's and so stuff. bad. And, and yet you look yeah. at the film itself and you've got your strong female role model there. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. And, and I, I know lots of, lots of friends of mine have said like that, that was one of their role models to pursue their career in science and paleontology. Uh, and that lifts my spirits. So I think you, it was a, a pretty good pioneer in that. Definitely. It had, had work to go, but it was a good, good early one. It did really well, actually, now that you've mentioned it. Ellie really is, throughout the film, she is... She's active and she's intelligent and she, you can see her expertise in her field throughout the film. It, it, they really highlight that. Whereas Grant takes on the parenting role through the film. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it, it sets that up right at the beginning because like he's not sure he, he doesn't really like the kids. <laughs> they're smelly. But he ends up looking after these kids through the whole thing. So while he shows some expertise and some of that you know, his role as a professional mm-hmm. paleontologist, it's right at the beginning, but the bulk of the film is about him making emotional connections. Whereas throughout the film, whereas Professor Sattler through the film, she's always the expert, the expert. She always knows what to do. She is the one who goes in to like flip the switch on the fuse box, which why did you put your fuse box way away from you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> On the other side yeah. of the rap, but like, and that, that's where the the, the direct um, uh, sort of sexism comment comes in, isn't it? Yes. Where Hammond is like, "Well, but you're a yeah, mm, and, and I'm a." We can talk about sexism in survival situations later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it, actually, the film does really, really excellently on that issue uh, in in terms of dealing with gender roles and yeah. It did for me anyway. It's like a little girl who all I wanted to do was play with dinosaur toys. <laughs> and, and couldn't but like no obviously can so I think what's come out with the whole revival of it and the games and yeah the books and the toys and everything is just it's just showing that it's universal and that if you want it like anyone can be a paleontologist if you want to and it's, I think it really ignites almost like a childish sense of bewilderment and wonder and everything but that's why we all loved it in the first place so I think this is a good segue. So we work in a museum which has dinosaurs. And I think any educator who works at an institution with dinosaurs gets this question from parents. So parents will have kids who love dinosaurs and they have memorized the entire fact book on dinosaurs. And so the parent <laughs> will come to us and be like, what do I do to help encourage this? I want my kid to keep this interest, but I don't have the expertise. What can I do? So I've got a couple of recommendations. My first one is something for younger kids. Look out for storybooks that are out there um, that are about paleontologists, because there's a number of them. Uh, one that came out a couple of years ago was When Sue Found Sue. This is a story about Sue Hendrickson, who's a paleontologist who found the world's largest and most complete T-Rex skeleton, uh, which is now at the Fields Museum in Chicago. And it's a story about her growing up and finding things all the time and then how one day she came across something quite special turned out to be this t-rex so there's a lot of books that are out there like that there are books about um mary anning the victorian paleontologist now as well that's very accessible to younger readers as well it's wonderfully illustrated recommendation for adults who or just older kids even 
who want to get a bit more into this, um, who, you know, they see their kids get into paleontology, but maybe they're not super into paleontology. Look for any book about the Bone Wars. Bone Wars was this huge rivalry between two fossil hunters, Charles Marsh and Edward Cope, and they just ran amok through the Americas. And if you're not super into like the details of like comparative anatomy and bones, if you're a bit more into history or just adventure crazy stories, the Bone Wars were this ridiculous feud between these two bone hunters. So I was going to say just on on recommending books for people who might not be so read up on paleontology as like a scientific discipline, like and having that nice kind of like drama about it, like the Bone Wars. There's another great book called The Dinosaur hunters about the earlier um, paleontologists in the UK during the 1800s and it has almost that kind of like period piece like backstabbing like kind of nature to it it has Mary Anning in there but it has other figures like um, Mary and um, oh what's his name Mantell Gideon Mantell the Mantells and also Sir Richard Owen um, and yeah, it, it's, it's very much like of if they're into some sort of like, almost like a Downton Abbey-esque romp, but this time with fossils. So <laughs> I think that's a good one. In terms of kind of practical things, it's always hard to kind of break into any sort of industry, but a, a huge part of it, I think, is, is volunteering. And it's definitely, it's a hundred percent how I got to where I am. And I'm not just talking about at museums, but any kind of um, organization that deals with the environment to show that you're dedicated and passionate for a certain sector, that you're willing to give up your time. And this is something that can be done on weekends, after school, obviously for places that they have different age groups that they take in, but looking at those kinds of volunteer programs at places that are close to home, is always a really really good idea and whenever anyone asks me this question in museums how to get into museums or dinosaurs paleontology that's my go-to answer is as soon as you can start volunteering because it really really massively helps and you make connections and contacts and you get the skills and it looks fantastic for progressing in those fields i'm sure you talked about it on your podcast before victor but citizen scientists programs uh, at least here in the UK. Um, I, I did try looking into other other countries like the US to see what sort of programs they have. But I think it's quite regionalized there yeah. because it's such a big country, it's a bigger place. Yeah, it'll be cool um, through whatever your local museum is or your local university. Mm. Look into citizen science projects that they'll run because usually they're they're much more localized. And, and if you're not able to, to join anything local, uh, do it yourself. Um, organize your time uh, if you've got children who are interested in paleontology take them somewhere like a, a coast near if you near a coast that uh, has potential fossils that they can find uh, but it's about motivation and enthusiasm and, and and keeping them going and spurring it on and encouragement definitely I totally agree mm. with that I think like especially if you're a parent and you have kids that for instance like love dinosaurs and maybe they don't have the accessibility to get out and go hunting for fossils even if they can do things like you can do things in the house with them to keep kind of fostering that interest and that passion like for instance say they've got dinosaur toys get them to sort of 
like arrange them in a sort of museum get them to be the museum cur curator and present like to you like they're sort of dinosaurs and their facts and things like that do like dinosaur drawing clubs they're really really fun as well and like just yeah really like if you don't have you're not able because obviously with the way that the world is right now you're probably not able to go to your local museum and get involved this sort of thing well bring the museum at home you know and there's a lot of museums actually that run a lot of kind of they have online tools and stuff showcasing some of their fossil collections yeah I think if right now, if you're struggling to find um, ways to tear people away from screens, like fossil hunting is a really excellent outdoor activity that you can do. Here in the UK, there's a really excellent website, Fossil Hunting UK. Uh, you can go through that and it shows you some of the best fossil hunting sites all around the UK and also um, local paleontology groups. They'll often run fossil walks through these different sites. So if you're if you aren't super confident or you're just not really sure exactly where to look, see about joining on to one of these fossil hunting walks all around the UK. The UK is quite a good um, fossil hunting spot. If you're in North America and the United States, again, uh, do a, a Google search and often you'll find places you get this, this kind of weird mix with people eager to share good fossil hunting sites, but you'll also get some people who collect fossils for commercial purposes, they want to keep their site kind of secret because, you know, they sell the good stuff. But if you are going fossil hunting, think about where you're going and look up what the regulations are in that area. Because if it's on private land, you'll often need permission from the landowner. Or in some sites, uh, fossils will actually be technically owned by the government. Again, double check on the location if there are special regulations, just to be sure. Don't go to prison, basically. <laughs> no trespass. <laughs> Electric fences. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, if, like me, you have a lot of dinosaur toys, and I know I'm in a conversation here with somebody who definitely has twice as many dinosaur toys as I do, you could always organise them. I like doing that. You could ask your child, you know, how many of these are bipedal, have two legs? How many of these... Uh, have armor plates. If you were to put them into groups, how would you do it? Though these are the sort of skills that paleontologists do. It's what they they do outside. They have to try and work it out with a lot less as well. <laughs> I love that. I used to do that with my teddy bears. I'm going to make my T-Rex roar now. You ready? Ah, come on, roar! Ah. <laughs> wow! <laughs> what a love finale! Them. Yes, we've come a long way. In that was yeah. fantastic. <laughs> if you've got any questions or comments, of course, send them in, in to us. Our email address is knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at kn underscore podcast. And as always, full show notes are at our website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Have a good day. Bye. <laughs>